Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zukran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time, serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. Over the centuries, skeptics have offered alternative explanations for the empty tomb. How do we evaluate these alternative explanations? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing from his weekly YouTube show, Question of the Week, and explains why the resurrection presents the best historical explanation for the empty tomb. Aloha everyone and welcome to another episode of Question of the Week brought to you by the Honolulu Christian Church and Evidence and Answers where we answer some of the toughest challenges presented by seekers and skeptics and those questioning about the credibility of Christianity. Now we've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we presented some of the evidence for the resurrection. These are the historical facts that we are all agreed upon. My mentor and one of the top men in this area, Dr. Gary Habermas, studied over 500 scholars on the historical background of the resurrections, everything from atheists to liberals to evangelicals and conservatives, those who accept the gospel accounts as historical, those who reject 80 to 90 percent of the gospels as unhistorical. And remember, these are the facts that we are all agreed upon, that Jesus died by means of crucifixion, that the tomb site was known and was found empty three days later, that there have been numerous resurrection appearances. We have the transformed lives of the disciples, men who are cowering in fear and then suddenly go right back into the city of Jerusalem where the enemies who had crucified Christ are still there in their seats of power and begin proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the preaching begins in the very city of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. That the preaching begins very early, just a couple weeks after the empty tomb. Then we have the testimony of men who were once opponents of Christianity. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Paul, who was the leader in persecuting the Christian church. And finally, we have a massive Jewish societal transformation where thousands of Jews abandon basic or essential tenets of Old Testament Judaism such as temple worship and sacrifice and worship on the Sabbath and embrace this Jesus as their Messiah, as one who fulfilled the Old Testament law. Now remember, any explanation needs to account for these facts that we are all agreed upon. All right, so whatever explanation that you give must account for these basic facts. And there have been several attempted alternative or naturalistic explanations to the empty tomb besides the resurrection that have been given over the centuries. So we're going to take a look at some and see if they are indeed 
give a valid and credible explanation for the empty tomb. Now the first one of course is the oldest one. It's found in Matthew chapter 28 and it simply states that the Roman guards fell asleep and the disciples came at night and stole the body of Jesus. Well, a lot of problems with this one, right? I mean, if the guards were sleeping on the job, how did they know it was the disciples who came and stole the body? And also, it's highly unlikely that Roman guards would fall asleep on such an important assignment as this. And also, it's highly, highly unlikely that 11 fishermen could come in the middle of the night if these guards were sleeping, somehow roll a one or two ton stone up an incline and snatch the body and run away with it without disturbing a guard. It's highly unlikely. And then you look at the facts around the account here. It doesn't look like someone stole the body. Matthew writes and the other gospel writers write that the shroud upon which Jesus was covered was folded neatly next to where he lay. Now if you go in there and you steal a body, what do you do? You just unwrap it and you throw that cloth somewhere and you run out with the body. You don't sit there and fold it neatly. And so there's a lot of problems with this explanation. That's why it really hasn't held credibility over the centuries. And history shows us men and women will not die for what they know to be a lie. Men and women will not die for something they know is a complete lie. Well, the next one, of course, is the legend argument. Simply that Christ was a legend and this resurrection account was indeed a legendary account. This was introduced by the atheist David Hume in about the 18th century. Well, as we showed in several previous videos, historians know it takes about two to three generations for legends to start to replace the core facts of a historical account. Right? In other words, it takes about 80 to 100 years for legends to start to creep into a historical account. Why is that? Well, the eyewitnesses have to pass from the scene in order for myths and exaggerated accounts to start creeping into the text. Well, remember, the preaching begins in the city of Jerusalem, right, where all these events took place. And it begins just days after the empty tomb way too short, way too short for legends to develop. Also, the Gospels, as we stated, are written anywhere from 20 to 40 years after the life of Christ. John is written about 95 AD, the latest one, but the first three, including Acts, is written probably 20 to 40 years after the life of Christ, way too short for legends to develop. And this ancient creed of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, the ancient creed on the gospel message, the resurrection of Christ. We can trace that creed to within three years of the resurrection, if not even earlier than that, to within a year or months of the resurrection. So it's way too short for legends to develop. Well, here's another one that the women went to the wrong tomb. This was developed by Kersop Lake, an eminent New Testament scholar from the University of Chicago in 1907. And he states that, you know, the emotional condition of the women, they were crying. Uh, the text says that they went before the sun came up. So in that condition, they went to the wrong tomb. And they saw that the tomb was empty 
And so they declared that Jesus had risen from the dead. And in this emotional frenzy, they went to the disciples, who then also went to the wrong tomb. And in their emotional excitement here, they began proclaiming, Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, a lot of problems with that explanation. First of all, the Gospels record where Jesus was buried, and they identified clearly in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very high-ranking member of the Jewish ruling council. So it would have been disastrous for them to make up a person like that, who is such a high-profile person, and make that a fictitious person and say, Jesus is buried in this man's tomb, because those facts could be easily corroborated when the disciples begin preaching the message in Jerusalem, where you know they could easily identify who the ruling council members were. And if they had gone to the wrong tomb, all the authorities would have to do is go to the correct tomb, produce the body, and that's the end of Christianity. Well, another one is called the swoon theory. It's introduced to us by a liberal German theologian named Frederick Schleiermacher in the 19th century. And he states this, that Jesus never really died on the cross. They thought he did. He simply went unconscious, all right? And then the cool, moist air and three days of rest there in the tomb and the cool, moist air revived him. He got up, uh, rolled back that one two-ton stone up an incline, got past the guards, walked about a dozen miles to the city of Emmaus where he appeared as the glorious risen Savior. Well, a lot of problems with this one. Those of you in the medical field identify problems right away, I'm sure. Jesus took a huge beating. He was whipped, he was beaten, he had lost a lot of blood. And the text states that he died quickly, relatively quickly, so that the Romans took extra precautions to make sure he was dead by stabbing him in the side. And John records out came a flow of water and blood, showing it pierced his side through the rib cage and penetrated his heart there. And that's why you got the flow of water and blood. And it's not hard to identify if a body is indeed dead. All right. And those who crucified Christ are expert in this art of execution. They can identify, easily identify a body if it's alive or dead. And the text also states that there's 80 pounds of perfumes and ointment to prepare the body for burial there. And so those who worked on the body of Christ would have noticed if it was alive or dead. And finally, atheist David Strauss, I think, put the death nail in this possible explanation. He said, even if, even if, let's say Christ went unconscious, you know, how likely is it that without any food or medical attention, he could somehow revive after taking such a beating and such a loss of blood? And even if he could roll up a one, two-ton stone away from the mouth of the cave, get past the guards, and walk several miles to Emmaus. How would he have appeared to his disciples as the glorious risen Savior, resurrected from the dead, the victor over death? I don't think so. David Strauss and most of us would conclude he would have looked like a beaten man in need of some serious medical attention. So the swoon theory really hasn't gained any traction over the years, although it does come back here and there once in a while. The only one really that's left is called the hallucination theory, which was begun by David Strauss, the atheist in the 19th century. And this is really the only one that I see come up in debates that I have had and other 
far more intelligent professors of mine have had against atheists. This is really the only one that's left. And the hallucination theory states that Christ died and was buried, and the disciples had a vision or a dream of Christ that was so compelling and so real that they ran into the streets proclaiming, He's alive, He's alive. Well, a lot of problems with this one as well. Psychologists, psychiatrists, they know that hundreds of people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. And of course, there were people that didn't want to believe. Thomas said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and touch his side, I will not believe. Paul was an enemy of Christianity, all right? And he came to faith in Christ. Uh, so the hallucination theory has a lot of problems here. And even if it was simply a hallucination and the disciples began proclaiming the resurrected Christ in the streets of Jerusalem, all the authorities would have to do is go to the correct tomb, produce the body, and that's the end of Christianity. So these alternative explanations do not account for the facts. Here's a recent one given to us by the atheist John Dominic Crossan, leader of the Jesus Seminar. And he stated that, well, Jesus was buried in a shallow grave and then wild dogs ate up his body so that when they went looking for his body nobody could find it. Well the Gospels make it clear where Jesus was buried. He was not buried in a shallow grave in the ground. He was placed in a tomb cut out, freshly cut out from the rock in a Jewish style kind of burial where they place the body on a bench there, allow the soft tissue to decay and then months later they go collect the bones and put it in an ossuary there and so they make it really clear where Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and of course John Dominic Crossan uh, tries to counter that by saying they made up this figure of Joseph of Arimathea well like I said it would have been an absolute disaster to name Joseph of Arimathea such a specific name and say he's a member of the high ruling council of the Sanhedrin there. He could have easily been identified, verified by those eyewitnesses as a real historical figure, or one that's simply made up. Right? So, and the fact that we had to wait nearly 2,000 years for someone to present this alternative explanation, you know, why wasn't it presented centuries ago, that throws it into suspicion here. And finally, we have the last one from Islam. It's called the substitution theory. And this theory states that Allah, or God, made someone look like Jesus, and he was crucified instead, and Jesus got away and lived the rest of his life in obscurity. And the three top candidates are Judas was transformed to make him look like Jesus, or Simon of Cyrene, the poor guy that, you know, picked up the cross and helped carry that beam up to Golgotha. They ended up putting him on the cross. Or there was a young boy made to look like Jesus and he took Jesus' place on the cross. Well, a lot of problems with that one, right? The authorities wanted to make sure they had the right guy. So they were going to make sure that the guy they arrested, Jesus, was the guy they put on the cross. Also, Jesus' disciples were there at the cross. His mother was there. And so they would have been able to identify if it was him or someone else. But the most disastrous part is this. In the Gospels, in John chapter 2 and in other passages in the Gospels, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection from the dead. And if he did not accomplish that, 
That would make him a liar and a false prophet, something no Muslim would dare to say about Jesus. Okay, so that explanation falls apart. So you look at all the alternative naturalistic explanations, and really they all fall apart here. They are not able to account for the facts. Well, let's take a look at a couple questions that have come in. One here states, Pat, you stated that people will not die for a lie. But I know many people who die for what is not true. For example, Islamic terrorists, communists, the people who follow David Koresh, etc., etc. Well, you're correct. People will die for a lie that they think is true. People will die for something they think is true, a religion, a philosophical movement, a political movement that they think is true but may not be true. But they think it is true. But people will not die, and remember what I said, people will not die for what they know to be a complete lie. They will not die for that. And if the disciples somehow stole the body and lied about it, they knew all right, that what they were perpetuating was a horrific lie that would cost them their lives, but not only their lives, but the lives of their loved ones, their family, and for thousands of people who would believe their message. And so that's what I was saying. History shows men and women will not die for what they know to be a lie. They may die for a lie they think is true, but they will not die for something they know to be a complete hoax and a lie. Here's another one. Pat, the New Testament says that Jesus died rather quickly. So why wouldn't the swoon theory be a viable explanation? Well, remember, you know, Jesus took a tremendous beating there on the cross. Now, medical studies have been done. Uh, when you hang someone on a cross, take any healthy person you want, and you just kind of outstretch his arms and you hang him on a cross like this. Eventually, they're going to die of asphyxiation because the lungs don't have the capacity to breathe. How long would it take for a healthy person just hanging on a cross like that to pass out from asphyxiation? Medical studies have been done and it takes 12 minutes. Okay, 12 minutes. So it doesn't take long for a healthy person to die of asphyxiation if he's hung in that position. So to prolong the agony, what the Romans did is they would nail the ankles to the beam so a person could pull himself up to breathe and then go back down and then when he needed to breathe again he'd pull himself up. So what you would see on a person who's alive suffering on the cross is you would see them pulling themselves up to breathe and then collapsing out of exhaustion and pulling themselves up again and collapsing. All right. Now, if you don't see the body going up and down, up and down, if you just see them hanging like that, the guy is dead. All right. There's, there's just no way the guy can breathe. Okay. If you saw the movie Silence, they're a great movie with, uh, by director Martin Scorsese. You saw that when those who were crucified died, they were just simply hanging like that. It's not hard to identify when someone has died. Okay? And the fact that he died early, the gospel writers record that extra precautions were made to make sure he was dead. All right? They examined the body and they even stabbed him on the side. And so the fact that he died relatively quickly brings further proof for the crucifixion that Jesus did indeed die because extra precautions were made to make sure he had died. Well, here's another one. Pat, can we trust the New Testament writers and their accounts because they are believers in Jesus and therefore 
biased. Well, this is part of what we call the genetic fallacy, okay? a form of the genetic fallacy where we dismiss an argument or an account because of you know, where it derives from. The author may have a philosophical or religious view that we don't like or a particular bias. Therefore, we dismiss the idea, the argument, or the account. That's a form of the genetic fallacy. And let me tell you why this is a fallacy. Okay? All of us have some kind of bias. All right? Even atheists have a bias. All right? So because they're atheists, I shouldn't believe anything they say. You know, or because they're Buddhist, they're Hindu, I shouldn't believe anything they say. No. A person's credibility or the credibility of an account is based on the evidence, on the facts. All right? So just because they were believers in Christ, well, that doesn't affect the facts. The evidence is not biased. The evidence is there to be examined. And we can look at the evidence and say, what is the best and most reasonable conclusion from the evidence that we have? And indeed, the historical evidence is there for us to examine. We have the evidence of the early manuscripts over a dozen non-Christian historical sources from people who are obviously enemies or people who really didn't like Christianity. We have hundreds of archaeological discoveries confirming people, places, and events of the Gospels. The evidence is there for us to examine and to come to the most reasonable conclusion. So although the historian may have a particular worldview or religious position, the evidence there remains the facts and objective and we can study the evidence and see what is the most reasonable conclusion and I think if you take an objective fair look at the evidence that I presented for the last couple weeks I think the most reasonable conclusion you're gonna come to is that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead that's probably the greatest truth of history that has been recorded by mankind because now we know as Paul says death is swallowed up in victory there is eternal life for all who believe in Jesus Christ that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead and by believing in him we can have eternal life and you know when you have hope in the future there is power in the present alright so that's why the fact of the resurrection and the story of Easter and of the miraculous life, death, and resurrection of Christ is such a powerful historical account and it proclaims such a wonderful promise to all who would trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this segment on the Gospels and the resurrection of Christ. If you have any more questions on this topic, shoot me an email at pat at evidenceandanswers.org and if you want to read more on the historical facts that surround the resurrection and the credibility of the Gospels I invite you to go to our website there at evidenceandanswers.org if you want to research more information about this well thanks for being with us I look forward to seeing you again on a new episode of Question of the Week We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, 
Bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference. Give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>